Hey, what's up, podcast? It's Jeff, and you are listening to a special bonus episode of Teach Better Talk. This is the audio pulled from a live stream that I did with Chad Ostrowski. Chad is the CEO and co-founder of the Teach Better team and the creator of the Grid Method. Chad and I went live a couple weeks back to just answer a lot of questions that have been coming up recently in our private Facebook group. If you're interested in getting in that group, you can go to teachbettergroup.com or just search Teach Better Team on Facebook. So this is just Chad Ostrowski and myself addressing a bunch of uh, recent questions that were asked on our private Facebook group. I hope you enjoy. Good morning. Did you like that one? I, I had like a robot voice on it or whatever. I, I, I did. I'm, I'm even more excited to be live right now. I'm having, I'm having t- probably too much fun with the... Uh, the intros and stuff there. So good morning, everyone. Good morning. We are actually on, we're in our Facebook group. We're also on Facebook, on, on Twitter with Periscope, on YouTube and on Twitch. Um, this one is, uh, I, we wanted to come live because, well, honestly, we haven't been live all week and that's kind of, well, we have been. You were, you were live last night for the Master Chat recap. But we True, haven't been, with Jamie. We haven't been live. Like it's been weird coming from two weeks of daily drop-ins to not. Um, so we thought we'd jump in on a Friday. Hope you're having an awesome week. Hope you're having an awesome Friday already. Maybe your first week of school. Maybe your first week, right? So excited for that. Um, we've had a lot of questions in the group. And before we go, one thing to note about this group is that there are, if you're not in a private Facebook group, go to teachbettergroup.com or just search Teach Better Team on Facebook. And we'll get you in that private group. But what's so awesome is all these questions have already been answered multiple ways by multiple people on the on the actual initial post but i wanted to bring you in and, and just throw them at you to let you kind of rant on them as well um because you don't always have a chance to get into all the questions uh specifically to the grid method in the group, even though i know you try too and, and we do a pretty good job um but that's what we're gonna do today so if you're listening and uh, i'm gonna throw this up on the podcast too as a bonus episode so if you're listening on podcasts now the pressure thanks man um if you're watching uh say hi some people jumping in so we'll do this first joe what's going on buddy good to see you um he already listened to episode 200 of the podcast now listening to us again i feel bad for you joe but thank you candace is in candace good to see you this morning uh candace is columbus back are you guys back in yet or is that not for a couple weeks i think you guys still got a couple weeks correct me if i'm wrong um but i love that she loved the content that's great michelle's here good morning michelle good morning jillian Good morning, Jan Reed. Good to see you. Canada's in the house. But yes, so good morning. Good morning, morning. represented strong in our network. Somehow. Yes. Love our Canadian friends. So what we're going to do today, Chad, is um, I've got screenshots. I'm looking at my other screen. I apologize. I've got screenshots of a few different questions that have been posed over the last couple of weeks in our Facebook group. And like I said, they've been answered. And I think most of them got the answers they needed. But I thought let's let's put a quarter in chat and let sure. him go too, right? If for that's for Joe listening to the podcast. If you haven't listened to episode two hundred of the podcast, we wanted to have some fun with it. So we actually had Chad and Megan Deegan, who's uh, one of our ambassador program um, coordinators, and then also um, uh, Caitlin Giordano, who's the boss, right? Had them on to chat with us, and we talked. We we kind of looked back at two hundred episodes, but it really got into more of a like journey of the team and of individuals and. Uh, they also dropped some some great tips and stuff like that. But we we joked about just kind of like putting a quarter in chat and letting him go that he doesn't actually know what's going on. And it's been it was been it's fun. I think the first ten minutes of that episode is really enjoyable. Uh, if you if you enjoy our nonsense, after that you could probably stop listening. Uh, <laughs> 
that's not true because at the very end of the episode uh everyone drops some really great knowledge and some really great uh, tips and ideas and ways to look at this um at this school year and stuff so let's get into these um i'm gonna bring them up on screen too here so um there we go multi-part question so multi-part question jacob santos i'm gonna read it for those listening on the podcast chad just so they have it uh, sure. it says, hi everyone I have a questions questions on the grid method question one how does uh or does each grid more or less represent a unit number two how long should a grid take to complete three how do you ensure when a quarter ends that each student has the amount of or same amount of work recorded in the grade book example student a is working on level four and student b has turned in level five uh question four is is a grid provided to each student at the beginning and question five is how do you hold class-wide discussions on topics if each student is at a different place in the grid um no apologies needed there jacob there's definitely uh, a lot of questions but all good questions and all very very common questions yeah i was um, about to say i think this summarizes the most common questions we get after yeah. teachers first learn about the grid method so let's take them one at a time chad i'm gonna um so so one <coughs> is does a grid does each grid uh more or less represent a unit more or less, yes, each grid represents a unit of study, which could cover one standard. It could cover multiple standards. You could have multiple objectives in there. Um, it is not a single day. It is not a single lesson. It is a learning path that represents an entire unit pre-test to post-test. Um, uh, every once in a while, teachers will get really confused and overwhelmed when they think a grid is supposed to be for like one day or something like that. And they're like, that seems like too much. And that's because it is. Um, this is supposed to represent an entire unit with scaffolded assignments that takes them from pre-test and pre-learning all the way to post-learning and post-test and even potentially beyond if they get into those higher levels, three, four, and five. True, true or false, a grid, though, could represent less than a full unit. Yeah, absolutely. There are some really beefy units out there. I know a lot of math teachers are like, I know this is a whole chapter or a whole unit that I normally teach, but I break it up into two parts. And I, th the rule of thumb I generally have teachers use is if you would normally break this apart, it should most, most likely be broken into two grids too. Yeah. So think about how you normally teach things. If you normally teach them broken apart, make broken apart grids, make two grids instead of one. If you normally teach them in a longer unit, make one longer grid, right? Um, don't go crazy with it, um, but um, that's absolutely um, the case. It's most of the time it's unit to unit. Yeah. However, there are cases where if you want to break a unit up or it's really, really beefy or there's a clear transition between one part of the content and another, then you may get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm going to do two separate grids on this topic. I think a good rule of thumb, Chad, is that if you have a worry that it's going to be overwhelming or have too much in a grid, break yes. it up. Break 100%. It up. Always I'm err always on better, the side Yes, yes, go ahead. You were going to say what I was going to say. Always err on the side of a shorter grid than yep. a longer grid. Always. You can, you can always do two. Yeah. Right? You, you can, can always, always – you can, you can always underwhelm them by doing two or three. It's hard to go from overwhelming them because then you're going to have that. that there's a very real reason I say this, though, because like the, there's a very real thing that if you make a grid too long and it's not going well, you're then stuck in a grid that's not a going well. Or yes. that, and you're stuck in it for five weeks instead of three weeks or, or what have you. That's right? a great great segue into the next question. Question two that Jacob had is how long should a grid, a grid take to complete? Um. 
That's a really loaded question. Actually. I know that's why I'm smiling. So, so this this um, Dave Schmidow just stopped in too, which is awesome. So, um, this is a really loaded question, and it depends on a lot of different variables. It depends on how quick your students work, how fast they're growing, and how long you plan on a unit taking. Right? Most of the time, okay. On average, I am not saying every grid in the world takes this long, but most grids take anywhere from two to five weeks, depending on what you put in them. I've had teachers do one week grids that are like little baby grids. I've had teachers do eight week grids that are big projects where students are doing multiple things. So it really depends on what you put in there, how long those things take, but it also depends on how your students progress. If you get to week two and you thought your students were gonna mostly be on level three, but they're still on level two, you may need to adjust. But a universal truth, Jeff, and you hear me say this all the time, is mastery learning takes longer, period, end of story. It will take longer than your traditional unit took. So if a unit normally takes you a week, maybe your grid will take you two weeks or a week and a half. It will take you longer. Also, I want you to think about something. You covering content in a traditional sense is very different from your students actively learning in the grid method. If I'm a teacher, I can lecture for five days and cover eight chapters. It, like I can literally cover a ton of material. And in my head, I can go, wow, I covered three units in one week or two my weeks. My students learned a weeks. lot in those three and weeks. My, yeah. yeah, right. But the chances are your students didn't really learn a lot. They just heard a lot or forgot a lot or, or did this other, these other pieces. Well, in the grid method, they're actively learning, wrestling with, being assessed, being intervened with, being checked in on. So it will take longer. It'll absolutely take longer. There's no ways about it. Like all the research says, all of our anecdotal evidence says it does take longer. But the caveat is students learn more. That's the payoff. It yeah. takes longer, but students learn more. So it will take you a little longer, but that's okay because you're getting more bang for your buck in terms of instructional time and how much growth you're seeing with your students. Right, let's go to number three. Part, uh, part three of his question is, how do you ensure when a quarter ends that each student has the same amount of work recorded in the grade book? Example, student A is working on level four and student B has turned to level five. And I know this could get very long and in-depth because a lot of it could be different based on how your school uh, or how you report your grades, how your school requires you to and stuff. But True. We, can you give more? Uh, so maybe stay a little broader on that. But Sure, absolutely. So the simplest way to answer this question is all your students won't complete the same amount of work because they might not need to to demonstrate mastery. Like we need to stop this conversation. It is never, ever about how much work the students do. It's about how much mastery they show. I would also state that um, and I know that's just me being super picky about the wording of the question, but that's sure. one of those things that like, it doesn't matter if they complete different amounts of work, because if they all have the same level of mastery, or if they all demonstrated mastery to the standard, and that's my next point, um, it doesn't really matter. The other thing this kind of opens up, the kind of worms that this starts to open up, is the fact that not every student should get through the whole grid or not every student will get through the whole grid when you don't normally plan it. I have five levels on the grid because some students will be able to extend beyond the standard, but your minimum goal for a grid is not every student gets to level five. It's probably not even every student gets to level four. 
It's mm-hmm. that every student learns the standard, masters the standard. So if you, and this is a really good reflection for anyone using grids or anyone thinking about using grids, because it, 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 I think it releases a lot of weight off of their shoulders. Stop thinking about it like you didn't finish the grid, so that's bad. Think about it as you either met or didn't meet the standard. So if the standard's written at DOK level two, okay, that means in theory, if every student gets past level two in your in your grid, every student could have a quote unquote passing grade, whatever that means for you in your grade book mm-hmm. in the class. That doesn't mean that that's the end of your grading scale, but it could be. Maybe that's your A for that grid, but maybe that's your low A and then your high A is level three because it's beyond the standard, right? I'm not going to open up that whole standards-based can of worms because I could talk about that for another 30 minutes, but... Aside from the grading aspect, it's really about identifying mastery of the standard. So if you had a bunch of students, some on four, some on five, it's irrelevant if they both mastered the standard and you can grade that accordingly. Level five should never be graded against the students because not every student should get there. I would also argue that anything above standard should have a minimal effect on a student's grade and it should only have a positive effect on the grade, not a negative effect. For example, maybe you can get an A by meeting the standard, but you can get an A plus, whatever that means in the world, um, by doing level four on the grid if the standard's at level three. So you will have students in different spots, but that's literally how it's always been. And this also identifies, I'm going to stop talking in a minute because I've been going for a while, but this also identifies, I just keep opening up these can of worms. So That's what we're here for, brother. This <laughs> This also identifies a huge issue in that those students were always at different places. Now you're just aware of it. Yes. So like, that's the biggest thing that I want to take away from this question. You've never ended a unit and not had this be the case and not had students at different places ever. Probably if you're, you're a normal teacher in a, in a regular classroom. Now you just viscerally feel it because you're tracking their progress, you know where they're at, and you know what you can do to help them in their next steps. So this is not as much of a problem as it's a gift, because now you have the information to do something about it. So I'm not going to get into all the grading practices, because that's a whole other can of worms. But I would just say, reference the standard, not how far they get on the grid. Because if you look at every grid and go, if you get to level five, you're, you're done. Um, or you you get an A and then so on and so forth, you are absolutely setting yourself up for failure because your standard might be at a DOK level two. And now your kids are drowning way above grade level because that DOK level three component of the standard isn't till two grade levels ahead or something like that. So you don't want to, you don't want to do that. <laughs> I feel like I feel a live session coming on sometime soon where I'm going to put you, Caitlin Giordano and Dave Schmidt on screen to just talk about grading and assessment. <laughs> yeah, just that saying would... that's going to happen. Uh, this is a, a fairly easy one, uh, but there are obviously some scenarios and if this, then that. Uh, four was, is a grade provided to each student at the beginning? Yes. Most of the time, <laughs> yes. Sometimes, yeah, most of the time, yes. Sometimes you might provide it differently, right? Some We've seen in lower levels where you might only provide one <laughs> yeah, level at a time. Sure. That's... So, so the grade is utilized as a student-facing document or something that the student interacts the grid, the grid with regardless. Yeah. Yes. Did I say grade? The you grid, grade. Yep. Is, is provided to um, each student 
or it started with each student so they're aware of it. Uh, we've mm-hmm. seen some kindergarten classrooms where it's like, here's your next assignment and the teacher has the grid because they don't want to overwhelm. Yeah. However, um, 99% of the time, <clears throat> absolutely, the student has the grid, the teacher has the grid, the administrator has the grid, the superintendent could have the grid. And, and that's really, um, if I want to expand a little bit, which I love to do, um, I want to expand a little bit. That's one of the powerful components um, of this document because Mm -hmm. it actually speaks to every stakeholder involved in the child's education in a different way, but provides them the information they need. So if you really think about that, if you make a very well-crafted grid and you follow our advice and you've taken the workshop and you've gotten (coughs) trained in the course or whatever it is, and you've aligned it to your standards, you have a cohesive curriculum document. So for a student, you've created a visual learning path. They know where they are and where they're going, which is very powerful. They know what their objectives are. They know where they're going. They know how they're being assessed. It makes everything very, very apparent, right? From a teacher's standpoint, you have a daily plan for the next however long the grid lasts. So you might have a three-week plan, a five-week plan, a unit plan that is now aligned to the standards. For a principal, you now have a curriculum map for each grade level, each class, each part of your school. For a superintendent, you know how your standards are being met, what's being done about it, how you're differentiating, and how instruction is being enacted in all of your classrooms because it's consistent, it's effective, and it's based with uh, on best practices. So I think that's one of the really powerful things that a lot of when we work with districts that they like about this because it truly gives them something to anchor everything onto. And in remote learning, the grid even becomes a great tool for parents at home helping their kids because now you can hyperlink all of the needed resources. Everything's in one place, in one document, and you could email it at the beginning of the unit or the week or whatever you want to. But now you've literally used a single document to inform every stakeholder of exactly what's happening in their child's education or the state of the children's education every moment of every day for the entire unit. But the, the shorter oh, answer was yes. They get a <laughs> All right, number five with Jacob, so I'm going to move on to the next one. Um, and this might, you might go on this one too. So I'll I'm try to ask, contain myself. Try to t- <laughs> stick to it. Um, I'm be here having a whole class-wide discussions on topics of each student is at a different <laughs> place in the grid. So I want you to stick to the logistics of this, not the pedagogical thinking of of preaching or anything like that but like so so i'm thinking in my mind i'm thinking ray hewer how she runs hers with her discussion stuff like that and go so i'm just trying to put my my limiter on for a second but um so so i'm gonna i'm gonna say another i'm gonna repeat myself so i'm gonna repeat a preach from earlier your kids are always at different places when you do things like this Every time you have a discussion, one kid doesn't know what's going on. One kid's participating a ton because they already know all the answers. And most of the time in a discussion, most of the responses are consolidated between like 5 and 10% of your students, while other ones glaze over, look at the ceiling, and draw pictures on their notepad or something like that, even if it's on Zoom, right? So I would argue that knowing where your students are actually from an instructional standpoint is a benefit because now you can target your questions to to every single aspect of your students. So if I'm putting a discussion in place, maybe the first question I ask is from level one. 
And I go, if you're in level one, you should be able to talk and, and um, give me some information about this part of the discussion. The other piece is you can backstop your discussion based on progress of your students. So when you notice that all of your students have gotten past level one, or most of them have at least, you can go, Friday, we're going to have this mini lesson, we're going to have this demonstration, we're going to have this discussion, and I'm going to kind of do a little, a little check based on this discussion about where everyone's at, close up some loose holes and, and things like that. And now you know you've kind of closed up any of those gaps, shored them up, and you can plan those discussions much more effectively rather than going, so this is what normally happens during a discussion and it makes me really mad. So yesterday we've been talking about chapter seven and eight. So today we're going to have a discussion about it. Well, just because you talked about chapter seven and chapter eight doesn't mean that they learned about chapter seven and chapter eight, right? That yeah. could mean some of them did, but it just means that you covered it. If you're in the grid method, you know that they know about chapter seven or eight because you've already assessed and shown mastery based on where they are in the grid. Yeah. So you're absolutely, and you're absolutely set for those discussions. I love right the fact that your discussion, your clockwise discussion should be more effective, especially if you're planning them around, if you're planning your questions around that, because like you said, you can hit on those points of, hey, anyone who's gotten past 2A, this is for you. Because yeah. even though I might be still on 1C, whatever, and maybe I don't know that yet, I might learn it better because my classmates describing it in their own words, right? Because we talk about all the time how you can learn better from each other and we do peer-peer tutoring and stuff like that. So being able to strategize those questions that way is, is so much more effective that time. Another note on this is a lot of teachers think that because students are working at their own pace, they can't do things like lecture lessons discussions and things yeah. like that which is one of the biggest misconceptions we we deal with in workshops when we're doing trainings at districts and um I, I, and we have teachers literally ray hewitt who runs this amazingly and most teachers do like 10 to 15 minutes of discussion or mini yeah. lesson or some sort of activity every single day so it's absolutely possible all right next question um melissa cunningham Thank you, Melissa, for it. Uh, I'm an instructional coach, and I will be doing a coaching cycle with a teacher on multiplying and dividing fractions. Any ideas for problem-based learning units and real-life applications? We'd like to start proposing a real-world uh, difficult problem and let this be a common thread throughout the unit. Thanks in advance. I don't know if you want to get specific to what she's specifically asked thoughts. about. Okay, but if you want to go specific, go ahead. Otherwise, let's just touch on the just the idea of like, how problem-based learning going? So this isn't as this isn't necessarily this isn't a grid question more. This is a PBL real-life application question. But but I do think that the grid could help solve this question in the context of PBL, right? So so one of the biggest issues with PBL that we I talk about this all the time. If you've ever seen me present, almost ever I bring this up, right? It's really really aggravating when you get to the end of a presentation, you've been working what end of a project, and there's presentation day and you get half your kids go up there and have no idea what's going on when they're presenting or they can't pronounce the words on their slide. Well, the reason this happens is because you set an arbitrary due date. They kept on working. It sounded like they were doing well, but they weren't actually learning or getting checked or, or knowing what was going on. And then they ended up presenting because that was the due date. Mm -hmm. If you break the exact same projects up into a grid, you're checking them every single step of the way to ensure that there's mastery. So they don't get to present, they don't get to demonstrate their final artifact or product or solution to the problem that you've presented until they've shown that they've done the work step by step. 
And if you've ever done PBLs, you know, I'm telling you, this is a universal truth that student projects literally have this arc, right? You get a couple really, really good projects, and then you get like some mid-tier projects, and then the rest just crap out at the bottom. Like, because those students weren't actually ready to demonstrate their mastery, and they got it done by the due date. So we need to take the project, break it up into steps, and focus on learning through the project, not learning, not the project as a result of learning. So a lot of times, projects in general, okay, get the biggest problem is that teachers do them after learning as opposed to during Mm -hmm. learning, right? And so the project should be while students are learning. Did you not need to jump in for a second? You look at you for a second. I, I was gonna have to repeat, but now it's probably too far from you being able to remember exactly what you said. But you said uh, it's about that you need because I want to touch on the fact that like this doesn't have to be in the grid method because I want to make sure that like you understand that's that, true. Like, that's this, this is still, this still a unit, and that's why we love the grid method so much because even if you take out the grid, it's the it still makes sense, right? So this this idea of because it wasn't a grid method specific question, I want to make sure that she gets that is that what you just touched on was the key is that. It's about breaking down the project and learning through the project versus setting that ar- arbitrary date and then learning and going through the project after. I thought I think that was like the key point to that of break down the project so they can get through it um, and go through there. So, so in terms of breaking down fractions and things like that, um, I think a great world, world application for this would be something like you have to open up a baking business and then scale it. So mm-hmm. like you need to you need to basically find a a recipe that's for a single person or a single family and now you have to you scale have to it based multiply. on the volume of your business. Right. So then you can give the students different scenarios. Each student gets a new scenario as they get better at this, right? They can practice these skills, yep. learn these basic skills. Now, the other cool thing is if you're doing this remotely, I'm thinking like they could actually make cookies at home using their recipes with like and show pictures of them with your Zoom class, um, yeah. things like that. So, um, but then having to scale it and say, this is how much your ingredients you had to order. This is how much they cost. This is this is um, how much it costs to make a cookie. How much would it cost to make a thousand cookies? How much would it cost mm-hmm. to make? And what would your? How many cups would you need? Or how many? You know, what would your? You know, because I think then you're really kind of getting into real world application, right? And I don't know um, what I don't know what level that is, Chad, but you can go even further. I'm listening. I'm like, you can go even further and bring the like economics in, in the sense of and business yeah. plan in the sense of like, all right, if your profit or if your, you know, your gross revenue grows by twenty five percent, what does that mean you have to do as far as customer serves? Therefore, what does your recipe have to go? And now you're bringing in percentages and, and fraction and that stuff. Like, I love that. That's really cool. I'm hungry right now, but well, if you another way to do this would also is to just eat bacon. everything they make. Right. Yes. Um, gotcha. Uh, another way to do this would be thinking about, um, you know, traditional U.S. measurement <laughs> system, right? So, like one and one eighth of an inch. What would be the area of a space you need to to plant a garden or something like that? Um, and, and if you need to double that space, what would the, what would mm-hmm. that end up being? You'd have to use fractions in the real world, which is why I love science and the metric system, because I didn't have to do that ever. Cause I would just move a decimal point if I needed to, it was just much easier, but like, um, <laughs> it's a whole nother can of worms. Um, let's keep rolling here. I got one from, uh, Dana and Lise, uh, it's back on the 16th. Uh, I'm on a, I'm virgin on panic mode. School starts for us on the 24th, teaching middle school math. I technically have four preps. 
but one of those is for three very different groups of kids. Half my kids are in person, half remote. I'm at a new school. I've never done a grid, uh, but have been watching the videos and learning. But when I sit down to, to make mine, I am a, at a complete loss. The curriculum is new to the district too. And there are only three math teachers in the district and no one else is teaching what I'm teaching. I'm totally freaking out and go Chad Ostrowski. <laughs> so Dana, uh, I just want to tell you, it's going to be okay. Take a breath and relax. Um, one of the biggest things about grid is you don't have to do it with every class, every minute of every day from day one. If you have four separate preps, I actually wouldn't suggest starting with all four preps. Now, if you mean you have four groups of students that are teach learning the same thing, which I don't think is what she was saying, then you could make one grid and use it for all three. However, um, I would start with your youngest prep. Okay, so if you teach like sixth, seventh, and eighth grade math, um, I'm not sure if she she mentioned what what, what grade level. Uh, she no, she doesn't. She didn't. She didn't so normally, if you have multiple preps, it's because you're teaching multiple grade levels, right? So you're teaching like sixth, seventh, eighth grade math, for instance. What I would recommend is focus on sixth grade math first. Focus on really shoring that up with the new curriculum and how it goes then move over to seventh grade math, then eighth grade. And here's why. Because if you just focus on sixth grade math for the first year, it's okay. Because now your sixth grade year is done. Then you can, all those kids know how to use grids that are going to be in your seventh grade class the next year. So then you work on your seventh grade grids. So essentially, if you want to take your time, you could look at over a three-year process. By the end of three years, I will have grids and students who know how to use them by the end of three years. Most teachers don't want to wait that long though. So what mm -hmm. most of the time happens is you work out the kinks in the first semester in sixth grade, and then you go sixth and seventh grade, second semester, and then you start planning sixth, seventh, eighth by third or fourth semester, or not semester, quarter. Um, and then, but like, just take your time. You don't have to do all of it right now. And I feel yeah. like a lot of her problem is she's trying to do it all like immediately. Oh, so got a lot, there's a lot of pieces that are of a new school, new curriculum, and multiple. Yeah, so take it slow and work out the kinks. Patience, yeah. I think. I think patience is really. I want to push on on that because you you touched on that. Like the patience in this process is really really important, especially now with the, all the other factors that are in. Absolutely. And I think like, listen to like if you hear how Chad was saying that they're like this might be a three year process for you like and that's okay because we're not trying this isn't about trying to find a, a quick fix it's about changing the way we teach right it's about changing the way we educate kids and people all around that's not a one quarter process to change right, right. so it's okay right. if it takes longer because if it takes longer and you do it right without killing yourself it's going to be better for you, for your family, for your students, and, and for the long term. So so really listen in on Chad talking about that patience. That's okay to do that. Um, you know, it's okay to, to roll it out slow. When we work with districts and schools, we do, we do we do three to five year plans. And it's because and, and it's very similar. Like we would start with small spots and we go a bit bigger and bigger. And it's the same thing as starting with one of your preps and the next one and the next one. So I love your especially if you have if you have multiple years like that, like fifth, sixth, seventh, like that, because now each year you're trying you're, you're creating new grids around a new a different uh, curriculum or subject, but with kids who already know how to use the systems, right? So now you're not doing that same new system, new content. So, sure. um, nice job, buddy. I try. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go on from Daphne. Uh, hello, I initially was going to be teaching all subjects to my third graders. 
I could easily see a master good for math, but now I am teaching ELAR and social studies. I am having a hard time figuring out how to do a master grid for reading when we teach a new standard every week. They hop all over the place. Week one, plot. Week two, fantasy fiction versus realistic fiction. Fiction. Week three, um, NF uh, nonfiction text features. Does anyone have any advice? I am lost. So, yeah, there's there's so many problems with this scenario that I don't know where to start. So like the fact that they're saying that like a student's going to fully understand plot in one week is is concerning initially right um i would also argue though that something like plot is going to spiral in every type of story you read so that's not necessarily something you have to make an entire grid on you could help start teaching plot in the context of some of those other um <coughs> excuse me in some of those other areas so if i'm having them read a story I'm also having them focus on the plot points of that story, right? So mm. that might be in multiple grids across multiple units instead of being just a single grid, one and done. Mm. And we really have to be careful of this, especially with things like reading, things like uh, even social studies and science and math, right? There are certain skills in every context. So you know, Chad, that, that is uh, Daphne agreeing with some of the concerns, I think, maybe, as I'm thinking some of that's coming from, not from her choice. Sure. No, I absolutely understand. So curriculum, curriculum schedules are stupid. I'm just going to go ahead and say that because you don't know the variable that matters, which is, are the students learning it? Like you can't just ignore that and go, well, it's been covered. Right. So, and and this is literally the universal argument for mastery learning. This is the thing that we, we say all the time. But we really do need to think about what spirals, which standards are spiraling versus which are those really big focus standards, right? So I would take those units that are not going to be spiraled. I would make those your grids and embed the skills of plot, embed the skills of, and then also you're teaching social studies too. So I'm even thinking one of the biggest social studies standards, and I'm sorry, I don't know what state this is from. But um, a lot of the social studies standards in most states cover things like primary, secondary sources, things like that. So, like, is there an opportunity to do a social studies grid with reading components for primary sources, citing evidence, things like that? So now you're combining some of your standards into a single grid, kind of killing two birds with one stone, so to speak. Um, um, Can you cover these things in more of a context way? that's those are some of my initial thoughts so texas i don't know what your teaks say um because that's what you call them in texas we know that because we've worked with texas schools before but um, um i i can't remember the, the social studies teaks and in, in, in what they say but I, my guess is that like i would combine your non-fictional unit with your historical texts i would cover both of those in a single project or unit and then cover both of those in a single grid now you're killing two birds with one stone. So that's going to relieve some pressure and give you more time, even though the learning might take more time. Mm-hmm. The, the efficiency of the curriculum planning is now increased, right? So um, I think it's really about identifying skill and spiraling-based standards and then one-and-done standards. I think that's really the most important thing for, I can't remember her name, Heidi to Daphne. Daphne. Uh, Daphne, sorry. For Daphne to do, I think that's the most important thing is like identify what you're going to see in every grid you do or every unit you do. Yeah, so you don't worry in, about 
your one and done standards are in the grids. Your Correct. spiral standards, ongoing standards are embedded somewhere in the grid. Hundred percent. Yep. Hundred percent. like you know, I, I know we don't people don't some people call them soft skills, some are essential skills, but like those are things that are embedded in every grid through yes, the thing, the activities that the students are doing throughout the entire year. To put it into another context, um, and I actually have an example of a scientific method grid, but like that was because I was showing my students what it was and then applying it later. So it doesn't mean you can't have those grids, mm -hmm. but scientific method in a science classroom is something that you should have in every one of your grids. Collecting data and analyzing and graphing data from experiments should be in every one of your grids if you're a science teacher. So I'm not going to have just one grid and then never talk about that stuff again. I'm going to introduce it to mastery to a certain level, and then we're going to use it all year. We're going to spiral it and use it. So I'm not super worried about that grid being one and done because it's going to be used throughout the year. Love it. Daphne, since you're in here with us right now, does that help? Give me a thumbs up or a heck yeah or absolutely not. Something like that in the comments, if you can. No, Jed sucks. <laughs> That's welcome too. That's perfectly fine. You know this. Um, uh, anyway, so good morning it to Kate. Uh, Kate jumped in. Nikki, good morning. Sandra Weir is here. Sandra, good morning. Good to see all of you there. Um, I'm going to look for Daphne's response to that, and we'll come back if we need to, but I'm going to bring up another one here um, from Heidi. Uh, just curious, do any of you lead a PLC group in your school uh, slash social circle? If so, has anyone created a grid to walk your PLC group and how to use it. I'm assuming she means how to use the grid. I'm thinking to start out the school year, creating norms, sharing ideas, et cetera. Can you share? I'm not seeing anything in the files that might fit this idea. So before you go on, Daphne says, I love it. Thank you. So awesome. Good question, Daphne. Good job, Chad. You can stay, buddy. So this is interesting. So this could be asking one of two things. I think it's asking to walk a PLC group on how to use the grid, not necessarily yes. and I a think grid for you, PLC groups, right? I, I think what the, no, yeah. And Heidi, if you're watching, to, what I think this is, Chad, is, is basically creating a an intro grid for your PLC to learn the grid is what I'm – that's what I'm reading. Well, well she says creating norms, sharing ideas. So, like, I'm reading it as, and this is just funny because we're literally both reading this question. Well, maybe she's walk, she's walking them through how to how to utilize a grid by going by creating a grid around. So, I'm going to answer both of these questions. Yeah, it's both. So, I actually think that you could create a tracking page and a grid for the focus of the PLC group if you just want to know how the PLC group works, right? So maybe you do like a baby grid to set norms, create those things and set those up. But then you shouldn't make a PLC group to learn how to do PLC. Does that make sense? Like that, that fundamentally doesn't necessarily make sense to me. However, PLC groups should be focused on an objective. So maybe your PLC group is focused on reaching more students in, in introducing the grid method to, to people. So the way that would work is you could create using our free course, using the resources we have, using discussions of, um, or give me a call. I can help run that PLC group too. Like that's cool too. But um, what you can do is you can start the process of making grids, make the first part of the PLC group, or maybe the first quarter learning how to make grids, learning what that looks like, whether that's accessing the academy or getting information. 
The second quarter, then you could start implementing grids and then your PLC group becomes your support group. You can talk about what's working, what's not working, how you're implementing it. Um, in terms of, I think that makes sense to me because the PLC group should really be a trial and error and discuss and, re, and, and improve the process. Not necessarily like everyone followed the grid for PLC, although we have done a lot of PD grids. That is a thing that gets done. So, so you, could, you could almost introduce the, gri the grid, uh, a grid to your PLC by having a grid. Be sort of like this is how our PLC is going to run. Here's the sure. norms, systems, here's the tools we're using to introduce. So it really depends on what that is. So Heidi, if that didn't get you what you needed, yeah, I know a lot, a lot of people jumped in and, and, and offered her a lot of support in the group as well already. But if you want to chat more about that, reach out to Chad. And, and if you want to build that, it sounds like maybe she's leading the PLC there. So like, sure. that'd be good to do. So um, last one I got for us is from Becky. Becky Thaw. Becky. Becky uh, we'll call him Murph. Um, and she's asking, a, 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 she made it nice and long for me. Jeez. Is, is anyone teaching students in person and remote simultaneously? And if so, what are you doing to make that work effectively? Preparing to return in a, a few weeks. And this is what our school is doing. Thanks in advance. Edit. Just to clarify, the majority of the students are attending in person five full days. The remote students have chosen all virtual. So we'll never physically be in the room, um, at least for the first mark, uh, market period. It's not a hybrid model. Remote students are expected to be on with us live via Google Meets for four hours. Just looking for suggestions on how to logistically keep everyone engaged at the same time. So she's actually going to have remote students streaming into her class as she's teaching her class, which Chad, I don't know if you remember, we've seen this a couple of times. It's been a while since we've seen a class, but we've actually seen a few grid method class runs where they have like, uh, they have, they, I can't remember, I think it was down in Cincinnati Public. We had a school where he had a whole other school. He classes did, you're right. School building. Now yes. that's different than being at home, but they, every single day he had a big screen and that had a whole other class on it. So my wow. vision is like, you could do that, but that screen, whether it's a projector or a bigger, whatever monitor, like that's where you're, that's your Zoom or your Google Meet. I think she said Google Meet is where all your students come in from there. Obviously, there's, there's a logistics in creating the the routines for muting yourself, talking out of turn, all, you know, because you have people that are in person in there. But that that's, in my mind, one way that you could do this, Beck, is you have them on a screen where the students in the class can see them. They can see each other if they choose to have video on. So now they have the ability to actually have that connection a little bit too. And then they're there with you. I mean... Yeah, you can get into like having the, the cameras that follow you and all that stuff. That gets a little more expensive. So you have to find out whether what you can or cannot do. But that's where my thought went uh, initially, Chad. But I'll let you yeah. go. More. If you want to go on the logistics, that's good too. She has asked about logistics. I think the, the pedagogy behind it as well also is really important in this type of situation. But I agree. So the logistics of this become more challenging in a teacher-centered classroom. <laughs> yes. Right? Like so if we're looking at the idea of when instruction is taking place, it's when the teacher is talking and keeping a video screen of students engaged at the same time as a, as, as kids in the class. And they're all doing the exact same thing. That's going to be most people's gut reaction. I'm just going to talk for 30 to 40 minutes. And then like, hopefully everyone's paying attention and then like, we're going to move on with our life. Yeah. However, if my, my response to Becky was like, I think I might know something that could help you. And she knew I was talking about the grid, but like, <laughs> but like my gut reaction for obvious reasons is like, if you make a grid and they're all following it, 
when you're in that live, I don't know if she's four hours straight with the same group, but I'm assuming at least an hour with a group, you could create purposeful small groups that are mixed with kids from the Zoom call and live kids that you go do small group with while the rest of the class is working on the other parts of the grid or wherever they are on the grid. So like, if you really think about it, what you could do is if I'm Becky, the logistics of this would be something like, and by the way, Google Meets, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I've seen multiple articles, they are introducing breakout rooms or something like breakout rooms that, that, that Zoom has. Um, I don't know if you've heard about that too. I've, I've heard it, but there's, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there right now, but a lot of changes potentially coming. So hopefully that's so, one of the things. So let's assume you can do a breakout room or you can do a Google Meet with breakout rooms or a Zoom call with break something, okay? Logistically, the way I would do this is I would set up, I would set up a computer for like all of the kids on Zoom to work, right? And then I would set up another user that's like, here's the breakout room with the other kids that are live in the class that are also where the kids in the breakout room are that are stuck on level one. So if I'm Becky, the first 10 to 15 minutes of my class, maybe I do my mini lesson, I get my kids started on their grid. So they're working focused independently. And then I go, no one's getting checked off. No one's getting signed off for the next 10 to 15 minutes. I'm going to go to that station and I'm going to interact with the computer screen with could have one, two or five kids on it. And whoever else is sitting in that same area, socially distanced probably. And then I can go, okay, let's go through 1A on your grid or 1B on your grid. Then after that, you can keep them in the breakout room, check back every five, 10 minutes or whatever you need to, and make sure that they're getting what they need. Logistically, that is absolutely um, how I would run that. Um, I can't logistically see a a better way in my own mind. other than creating that learning path and, and, and focusing your live time. And this gets back to something we've been saying to a lot of districts. Focus your live time on helping and intervening and motivating and, and meeting with your students one-on-one. You can record yourself talking for 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. That is not, and I'm, you can quote me on this as much as you want. That's the stupidest use of your time if you have 45 minutes with your kids live once a week or twice a week. Like that makes zero sense to me why you would waste all of that time. Okay, everybody open up your Zoom calls. Even though we can fully interact for the first time all week, I'm going to talk at you for 45 minutes. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, Maybe 10 minutes, a mini lesson, go over some things, but then you need to get them learning and working on the work so you can help them on the work, on the learning, on mastering more concepts, on closing gaps, on intervening where they need help. That's how we need to utilize our time when it's live. And that to me is like a non-negotiable. Any teacher using 60 minutes a day live with their kids to talk at them is wasting 60 minutes a day with their kids. I'm going to go ahead and say that. You can record it, even though this is recorded. It is recorded. But like, but like, I'm sorry, but you are. Even though that's the lowest common denominator of instruction, if you really think about it, we are reverting to the lowest form of instruction, which is I'm going to tell you all the things you need to know. You're going to go do the work later in some other point. But I want students working when I'm there, not later So I, when I can't help them. Yeah, I think the catch is even though they're required to be with you live, 
you should still be structuring it for them to be able to learn on their own asynchronously, right? Like that because yeah. and because because then the remote learners and the people in the classroom, like they can still go get the work and do the work without you, without being in your room either way. Because at some point there might be a, that half that's in the room might not be able to be in the room for part of your year too. So again, it goes back to planning, planning everything as if everyone is a hundred percent virtual all the time and then enhancing it if you have 100%. time. So right now, Becky, you've got, if you plan it all hundred percent virtual, the best you possibly can. Now you do have some time when they're either going to be live with you in person or live with you streaming into your room. Now enhance it. Like Chad is saying with small group, with intervention, with some maybe additional many lessons, things like that. I think that's, that's the key because then if, something happens and everyone has to go virtual. They're still getting that, that best you could create uh, um, right. uh path, right. And that learning that they have there. So good stuff. Becky knows how to find you. I think she does. That's the last one I got. So that, that's what I had right there. Um, Chad. So we're good. We've been on about 48 minutes. This was good. Make sure you, you're good. Uh, you've put in 48 minutes. You can go take a nap now. Take, you know, take the rest know, of the day man. off. Whatever you need to do, my friend. Um, if you're, if you're listening on a podcast, do me a favor, hit subscribe, give us a rating and review. We really appreciate that. Make sure you get into the group over at teachbettergroup.com over here on Facebook. Everyone in the group, thank you for chiming in. Um, everyone who's watching on uh, Twitch and YouTube and over on Periscope, appreciate you jumping in um, and continue to do that. Get in the group, ask questions. You can ask questions on any of the other platforms too, by the way. So, um, But that group really does have a great support system already in there for even when I can't get chat on camera like this, there's a lot of support in there. So. Um, Keep reaching out, uh, and we'll, maybe we'll do this again next week. We'll come live one one morning and just cover some of the questions that are going on and do that and and uh, work on more stuff like that. So appreciate you all. Have an awesome Friday, and um, I think Chad said it somewhere in there, but with all this stuff, take a breath. You're going to be okay. You're good at what you do. Teachers are ready to adapt, so we appreciate you. Have an awesome, awesome Friday. We'll see you.